Welcome to the Digital Thoughts Podcast. My name is Zan Sayed, and I am a pharmacist turned product manager. I have almost 10 years of clinical experience in oncology, ranging from inpatient all the way to outpatient. My goal with this podcast is to bring people from all sides of the conversation together so that we can learn from each other and build a better healthcare system. In this podcast, we discuss everything digital health from the people to the products. If you do enjoy what you listen to, please consider giving this podcast a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really does help a lot. Thank you very much, and let's get into the episode. Today, we have an awesome guest. Jason Dupuis is the Executive Director of Customer Growth and Success at Offer Health. In this episode, we talk about the difference between nonprofit and for-profit institutions, why the family experience is as important as the patient experience, how do you create a culture of innovation, what he looks for in patient engagement platforms, and how to get your product in front of decision makers. This is a jam-packed episode. I hope you guys enjoyed as much as I did. Jason, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, man. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, For people that don't know who you are, do you mind giving us a little background about yourself? Absolutely. So my name is Jason Dupuy, and uh, I've been working in healthcare for about 23 years now. Um, So uh, in my career, I was always looking forward to hitting the decade mark of experience because I felt like that was the moment where you were you were verified, validated and and, 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 uh, incredible. Uh, so it's pretty wild now that I've I've gone past the two decade mark, but uh, I've I've been uh, very fortunate to work in the for profit and non profit sectors of healthcare, um, starting out at Boston Children's Hospital, uh, and then moving over to PM Pediatric Care, um, where I spent six years. Uh, and at Boston Children's, I was actually there for fourteen years. So I always say professionally, I grew up um, in an academic pediatric academic medical center professionally and uh, pretty much personally too. I think I grew up there. Um, and then moved over to PM Pediatric Care, where I served as the Chief Experience Officer for six years um, prior to my departure from there. And, and currently, I'm working um, uh, as a consultant and principal healthcare advisor for a company called Fidelum Health, um, which really focuses on focuses on human com, uh, human components and how humans behave, uh, and trying to apply that into the experience ecosystem within healthcare delivery. Uh, so that's I'm, on the personal side. I'm an avid outdoorsman. I'm a hiker. Uh, that's how I center. That's how I ground myself is uh, getting myself outside and uh, and uh, being in the world around us. That's awesome. Yeah, I need to I need to do better at going outside. Uh, now that I've s- recently switched to work from home life, I I mean I have windows uh, that I'm always looking. Oh, it's really nice outside, but I really need to physically go outside. But no, that's well, I'll go ahead. I was going to say it's interesting you say that. I was just chatting with a, a former colleague of mine, Pat Dillingham, and um, we were talking about the importance of uh, of getting outside, but. More importantly, we were talking about our time together in the emergency department where there were no windows and how we used to wander ourselves to the front where the entrance was to just see outside, right? And uh, and that actually, how humans really need that. We need that inject of outside. You know, we were built that way. So uh, when you have no windows, it's even worse, right? It's uh, You kind of feel trapped inside. Yeah, yeah I mean, every pharmacy, almost every pharmacy I've ever been in has no windows at all. And um, <laughs> yeah, and it's like, you, especially in the winter, you're like, you go in when it's dark, you leave when it's dark, like you've literally not seen any light throughout the whole entire day. And it gets yeah. really depressing. So yeah. Um, so, totally. what, so yeah, the one there, there are a couple of pharmacies I've been into that have uh, windows. And it's amazing. It's like, it's really changes your work day, right? Like you see like, okay, there's other things going on outside, you see, like, you know, you can kind of get lost in looking outside. 
but yeah, no, I completely agree with you there. But so love to touch on like the for-profit versus non-profit thing. So uh, you haven't, you have a background in kind of patient experience and patient journeys and such, right? Um, yeah. What was the biggest difference between the for-profit or non-profit side for you personally that you saw? Like it doesn't have to be yeah. good, better, and different, but just something that you saw that was different. You know, it was it was kind of interesting from my perspective. What I learned over time between the two is that they are very similar. Um, behavior was similar, budgeting was similar. Like there really wasn't these huge differentiations necessarily in the behavior of the organization, um, which I thought was really fascinating because I anticipated in my move from Boston Children's when I did switch over to PM Pediatrics and you know, which was a, is a for-profit company that I would feel this sense of difference and not necessarily paying attention to the same things. And I, I found that over time to be largely, you know, not true. Um, so that was actually a really kind of a, a fascinating transition. And when, you know, I, I like to share this because it was a really, when I went to make the move, I was like, man, this is going to be very different to leave this not-for-profit sort of environment and go into the the game, you know, I called it where it's a, a very different. Um, and I was really nervous about it, actually. And so, you know, it was, it was interesting. I do think the for profit healthcare side, it, from my experience pays more attention to experience as a function or as in the delivery, because when you're competing, and you're competing for dollars in a significant way in a consumer environment, you know, the little things, which I see experience as a big thing, but the littler things that maybe a large hospital institution talk about and pay attention to become mission critical in this other environment, because it, it, you're trying to compete against, in our case, it was competing against other urgent cares, right? So if you're competing at that level, then you have to have differentiators and experience was kind of one of those differentiators that I saw uh, in the in the difference. But um I, and, and the other was, uh, I'm a big core values guy. So I, I think core values are critical to me as a person, but also in every organization that, that those should be vehemently lived and upheld. And so when I was transitioning from Boston Children's to PM, I was looking at PM's um, core values. And one of their core values is be mindful of the need to be profitable. And that, when I saw that, I was like, whoa, that's weird, right? Because this idea of seeing healthcare in this profitable sort of mentality was all new for me. And I actually challenged it to an extent. I actually went back and I said, I need, I need you guys to explain this one to me because I was struggling with it. And uh, uh, the, one of the CEOs, the, the, there's two CEOs of, uh, of PM. One of the CEOs said to me, is like, well, Jason, listen, if we're going to revolutionize the way healthcare is delivered, which was the mission of the organization, we have to make money. If we don't make money, we can't revolutionize healthcare. And right away, I was like, that makes sense. I mean, we can't, we cannot revolutionize a system or innovate or be creative if you go out of business or if you're not making money or you don't have that as kind of your your goal. So you have to have that money to reinvest in the idea and to be able to continue to grow and expand. And so, you know, I was very easily able to mesh it, you know, kind of across. Um, on the downside, just to share was obviously the money matters way more in a for-profit than a non-profit. So, you know, when things get tight, there's not necessarily an endowment sitting back behind it like you have in large academic hospitals or, you know, it's not as big of a system. So the impacts of, say, a pandemic and those things hit harder, they hit deeper. Um, and, and that became very challenging as time went on, you know, it was kind of navigating that sort of more volatile environment. Yeah, no, it's um, you brought up a couple of interesting points. And I think that academic academic medicine 
has like, you know, these academic institutions have this massive, like, they don't have to advertise. Let's just say that, right? Like, you know, everyone knows what the Mayo Clinic is. Everyone knows Cleveland Clinic, you know, Johns Hopkins or all these things, right? And I'm not saying they're bad hospitals in any way, but like, you know, they don't have to fight to get to the top. Right. Everyone knows what they are. So, you know, it makes sense that, you know, a, a, small, a smaller for-profit institution is really focusing in on, okay, what separates us from them, right? We don't have the academic accolades. We don't have all these things. What can we do? And in a weird, in a weird way that kind of makes the patient experience a little bit better, right? You know, and it, because they have to separate themselves. And I find that kind of interesting, especially the way, the way where healthcare is kind of going, right? Like there's consumerism is starting to creep into healthcare and it's forcing even non-for-profit hospitals to kind of rethink their, like, Hey, what are we doing? Cause you know, with DPCs coming out, you know, value-based care is now starting to take hold with all these massive mergers. I think that's just an interesting thing. And I, and I do think patient experience should be really on top of the list. There's a lot of things that we do in healthcare that just doesn't help the patient in any way, shape or form. Right. No. And it's, it's so true about the marketing and the advertising and trying to figure out, you know, how to attract, but you know, patient experience, when we take that, um, you know, we have this in the experience landscape, we have this conversation all the time, patient experience or patient family experience. When we, when we start to unpack it is really your marketing and your advertising when you get underneath it, it, you know, it's, it's actually how you generate loyalty is someone comes in, you provide them the consumer, you know, as you were saying, right. We provide that, that consumer a great experience. Well, when they need to make a decision, a purchase decision, again, you make it very easy for them to choose you based on their human experience that they had in bit. Right. And it's like, so we, we spent a lot of time talking about this at PM of like, how much do you invest in marketing versus how much do you invest in the experience and the function and trying to understand it, you know, with the goal being the same, you're generating um, visits, you're generating return visits. And I will say this, it, Sometimes when I talk like this, it gets some people in healthcare very uncomfortable because it's like, well, is our goal to generate visits? And it's like, well, people are going to, in urgent care, people get sick, people get injured. They're going to need care. What we want is not for them to get sick or injured. We want them to choose us when it comes to that decision point, right? That's, so it's, I always like to clarify that or define it because it's like, we're not trying to just drum up needless business. That would be against kind of the ethos of healthcare, no matter what you do as a healthcare organization. But you do as an organization, a business, as a company, right? You, when it comes time to choose, you want them to choose you. And to your point, you know, when it comes time to choose and you need the Cleveland Clinic, you know about them. When you need Boston Children's, you know about them. And when you're playing the game and not everybody knows about you, then you have to differentiate yourself because that's the only, they choose you and you want them to keep picking you, right? Uh, it's a, it almost goes back to the playground when you're picking teams for basketball, right? It's that idea, like you want to get picked, you know, you don't want to be, you don't want to be the one that doesn't get picked and assigned a team, you know? And uh, so I, I do think that plays big time into this is what's, what's the reason they're going to choose you, you know, and uh, experience is it. I mean, I think that drives in a huge majority of it. Yeah, no, I'm so glad you brought up like patient family experience. I think, um, so a couple of points before we get into the patient family experience, I completely agree with you. Like, you know, when people say like, Hey, we need to generate more revenue. We need to do this. I mean, generating revenue in healthcare is getting people to come to you, right? You're, I mean, you're generating revenue, like even I used to be in that camp, like, oh man, you can't, I mean, I don't know why, what it is about us in healthcare, uh, especially when we come out, like we're not allowed to make money, right? Like people are now looking right. at like our salaries and all these things. 
you know, forget all the other things going on, but like, oh man, you guys make too much. You guys do this, do this. And then uh, us on the other end are like, oh, you know, we want to work for like this ivory tower, you know, academic institution when we're all coming out. And then like, you know, kind of to your point initially, like the difference between the academic institution and the for-profit, there's not much, right? They're budgeting the same. They're doing all the same things. It's just one is marketing. The other one doesn't really need to market as much, right? That's really the biggest difference. And, but the, the whole everything else is the same their business models are all exactly the same it's just that one side has to be a little bit more cognizant of it than the other side and that i think is just something that i think think a lot of people understand uh if if they haven't worked in both areas but i do want to touch on when you said patient family experience because i think that is something that a lot of people forget is it's just not the patient experience it's also the family of the patient's experience could you kind of go into a little bit about that like why is it so important to make the family experience also as good as the patient experience? Yeah, no, it's a good question. It's, it's interesting you picked up on that because I'm, I, I habitually, and it, it, not for any cool reason, like I habitually call it patient and family experience because my entire career has always been in pediatrics. And so when, you're, when you live in that world, it's like, well, who are we really delivering the experience to? And, and I used to make the joke at, uh, when I was at PM Pediatrics, that's really parent experience, not patient experience, because you spend more time focused on the parent, you know, trying to, because they're the, they're the purchaser, they're the, you know, so you spend a lot of time on the parent, but the patient and family is so important. And I, I can't off the top of my head attribute this quote, um, but I, there was a great quote that was, and I think it's good for all of us to remember. It's like, we rarely navigate our care alone. Rarely, even as adults, we are rarely navigating our care alone, especially if we're talking chronic conditions or complex diagnoses and really acknowledging that and stepping back and saying, hey, this person is navigating their care with other people and it's generally their family. And their family is having an experience too. They're, they're just the same as, as the patient. And though it makes sense to focus on the patient, they're the one going through it, their support system around them is part of their experience too. And we wanna be mindful of, and, and I don't wanna use the word include, but having them be a part of the experience is actually really important to the patient. Right. It's less than maybe the organization. It doesn't bring you much value as an organization, but it actually brings tremendous value to the patient themselves. Um, and so, yeah, I, I always I always like to say it as patient and family experience because we have to pay attention to all those avenues. And, and you know, a cancer diagnosis, for example, the whole family's going through that and they're going to all need support. And I'm not saying it's our obligation to take care of all of them, but it is our obligation to make sure that we're paying attention to everyone's experience when they are in our environment and in our care, um, because it includes the family too. I would say that it is our, I mean, I, I'm, I would say that it is our obligation to take care of the family because if, if the family's less stressed out, they can better take care of the patient, which would lead, which will lead to better outcomes. And, you know, I just recently wrote about like, the caregiver experience in healthcare and how broken it is and kind of looking it through the lens from the cancer diagnosis, right? Just because that you're, you know, in this case, the wife found out her, you know, the husband found out he has cancer, but the wife and the son are going through their own issues, right? And they're constantly trying to go through the system. You know, they're taking time off work. They're doing all these other things and the system is constantly working against them. And then on top of that, they have to take care of their husband. I mean, it's not easy. And I think a lot of people, even us in healthcare, forget about that. Like, yeah, we're so focused on the patient, but the family dynamics also mattered a lot. And I, like I said, I think, and I think it's and like, you know, there's a lot of patient experience um, departments and hospitals, and I think they should be changed to patient family experience, because I think that that would really drive home the fact that 
hey guys, we really need to look at a holistic approach. And I think the pandemic, and I completely understand why a lot of these rules were put in place, 100%. I worked in the hospital while, while this was going on. But I think that it went too far. And, you know, I, I mean, I was literally watching people die alone. You know, like they, there was right. like, like we started, to, we're starting to lose humanity in healthcare. And I think that that's not serving our patients or our families well. Like we kind of have to go back to why we're doing this. It's not to kind of, you know, just grab our check every other week. It's to help people and help right. them physically, mentally, and emotionally. And we're kind of taking the emotional part out of it completely. I, I no, I, I, First, I agree with you. I think there is that sort of uh, the dehumanization of it kind of feels real. I think there's a few different drivers of that. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, I really believe in that goes back to when we were saying patient family experience was I started in, in you know, there's a bit of a movement uh, around this in the patient experience space of getting us away from patient experience, starting to use human experience um, to try and acknowledge that we are all humans. And you know, I, I've been saying that human experience thing is a bit of white water right now. No one's really been able, you know, we haven't seen a good definition or a good, but there's a lot of talk about it. And I think it's really important conversation, not only to have, but to be a part of, because when you attach human to it, one, it identifies us as a unit, right? It unifies us rather as one group. We are all human. So that makes it very easy um, for us to say, let's take a step back and get rid of titles or roles and start just identifying as humans. The second is, is that it actually includes the care team. Um, it includes the employees. It includes because, you know, I, I used um, the example of, you know, we went through the pandemic and it was like, can anyone raise their hand and say they didn't struggle during the pandemic, right? It's like, okay, that's a human level thing. That was not strictly for patients or families. That was care teams, patients and families. That was society as a whole. And I think those are things when we start cueing ourselves into it, it lets us understand experience a little better because we can then attach to it as humans. We can then understand. And, um, you know, my big driver for that, what really got me going on that human experience was watching our care teams start to come apart in the process. And now they're coming apart while society and patients and families who are coming in for care are coming apart and talk about just a collision of humanity and frustration and anger and, you know, just the, um, we called them threatening events at PM where there were altercations between care teams and patients and families was way up. And when you're dealing with that sort of thing, it's like now zoom out and be like, okay, humans are struggling. And the human experience starts to matter a little bit more. Make sure you're taking care of your care teams who are taking care of your patients and families. If you don't do that, it bleeds right through, right? Their frustration, their struggles are going to go right into the experience of a patient and a family too. And so, you know, as we're talking, it's kind of like we're zooming it back out and saying, or zooming it in, I guess, which way, whichever angle you want to take and say, like, at the end of the day, it's a human care system. And we have to take care of all of the humans in that system. And that includes the care teams too. I mean, we cannot leave them out, you know? 100%. And I think that, I mean, just recently in, in um, England, you know, the junior doctors are going on strike for three days. Um, over here, you know, there were a lot of nursing strikes. Uh, people are leaving in droves from hospital systems. I mean, I'm one of them. Right, and, right. Uh, and it's not, I mean, the funny thing is, if you ask all these people, if they would go back, I mean, I, I mean I'll just speak for myself. If somebody asked me, do you regret going into medicine? The answer is no. Do you regret doing what you were doing? The answer is always no. Why did you leave? It's not because of the work. 
It's not because I was working too hard or this and that. It's just all the other stuff that we had to start dealing with in the pandemic. You know, we were, we all knew kind of what we were getting ourselves into. We knew that, hey, work-life balance might not be the greatest. We're going to see some crazy things. You know, we have to be emotionally stable. We have to do a lot of things that might not be great for our mental stability, but in the end, it's worth it because we are helping out. But then, you know, you have all these other things going on that you didn't think about all this red tape, whatever. And that's what really breaks us down, you know, because our, like you mentioned, our experience in, in, in healthcare right now is God awful. And if you just fix it a little bit, people would stay, you know, like I tell people, like, if it was a little bit better, I probably would have never thought about leaving. Like I just wouldn't have, because I loved what I was doing. I think the, you know, kind of you touch on something that's actually a really, I always enjoy talking about, which is, you know, when you're working in a large hospital or even a small hospital and, and, you know, we, you, you consider the bureaucracy of the organization and, and how complicated it is. And, you know, when I was at Boston Children's, we used to talk about, you know, where essentially anytime you were trying to innovate or do something different, you were trying to undo 150 years of Harvard bureaucracy. That was the way we would say, right? And it's really not a knock. It's reality. It's yeah. like this organization has existed since I think it's 1890 something Boston Children's, right? Uh, affiliated with Harvard and the bureaucracy that comes with that and the, and the prestige. But how do you actually do And it can get very frustrating in a complex system. But what I always found or what I was believed and found in my work is it's incremental. Like when you keep it in small incremental gains, as long as you are moving forward, one foot in front of another, you can create change, but you have to accept that it's going to take years, years, right? Not you can't now. Yes, clinically, and you know, like you can do things very quickly if there's a life at risk. But when you talk about foundational change, it's it, the process is so long and it's grueling. And so. I also think the reason I'm sharing that is then I think if we take society or the healthcare system today, it's moving at 200 miles an hour and we've got bureaucracy that's moving at 10 miles an hour. And so how do you keep up, (laughs) right? How do you actually stay on the cutting edge or the innovative end of healthcare delivery, not quality? I always leave quality care out because I feel like quality is always a focus and as it should be and it's prioritized. But when you take the whole part of the care experience, it's like the other pieces are just back there running, but they can't catch up, you yeah. know? And uh, and that's why I think my drive initially to leave the hospital was kind of like, I wanted to innovate. And I didn't feel like we were gonna be able to do the innovation that I that was needed or that I really was passionate about doing in that environment then. And mm-hmm. so that was kind of my driver for going like, let me go over here into this for-profit sort of entrepreneurial side and get some experience and see what I can do in that environment. You yeah. know, and I, I think that's, I think your story, my story, and many people's stories is the same. For a while, I called it the land of misfit toys, right? Like we were all kind of the land of misfit toys that were leaving the hospital, but to your point, we're seeing it and it's getting bigger, right? More and more people are doing it. So it's uh, it's becoming common, not uncommon, right? Yeah. And, and this is not like a knock on the hospital systems or whatever. Like, I mean, it, it is just, I mean, we have to, they have to be very careful as to what they do, what they're able to do, because not only let's put the reputation aside, there's people's lives in stake. And, you know, I think a lot yeah. of, a lot of outsiders forget that, that, Hey, we're dealing with people's lives. It was just that in the pandemic, there was just so much going on. Like you mentioned, there was arguments between care teams, each other. Yeah you know, care teams with patients, paid care teams with families, things that we just never dealt with before. And like, it just, things were just out of control. And you're kind of thinking like, is this our new reality? 
You know, it was supposed right. to be a couple of weeks, a couple of months. Now it's a couple of years. And you're just kind of <laughs> right. like, I don't know if I can do this. And for me, I was like, hey, I don't think I can innovate fast enough from within. It's not that I hated where I worked. I loved I loved every place I worked with. I loved all the people I worked with. It was just that I wanted to make it a better for myself and also other people like me that, hey, you know, I want I want I don't want them to think like I did, like, hey, I have to leave to make things better. I want them to be like, hey, I love it here and I'm never going to leave because there's so many right. amazing people that work in healthcare, And it's it's sad to see people like that kind of break. But I do want to touch on innovation and you yeah. kind of talked about how you and like, you know, you do it small things like, that. like how do you create a culture of innovation? Yeah, it, it's a good. It's a good question. I don't I, I'm laughing because in my head, I'm like, am I qualified? That's the answer. But um I always say, sure, why not, right? You ask me the question, I get an opportunity. Um, no, I, you know, I think the what I learned, especially in healthcare, when I switched over, and I'm talking specifically about my time at Pediatric Care, was that one of the things that I learned very quickly, especially in the arena of experience, is that I always treat experience in, um, as an art, right? Creating an experience for somebody is an art. And, and when I see it that way, because that's the way I... I, and that's also the way I teach it. <laughs> I also had to accept that most of the people I was trying to teach art to are scientists, right? The, the physicians in particular are scientists. So how do you teach a scientist art? And so that was, that question felt to me like a million dollar question. And I, I was trying to figure it out. And I, you know, one of the ways that I started working through that was I started taking data not numbers data, but um, comments or sentiment data from surveys and, and quantifying the sentiment. Because I felt like if I could quantify the feelings and the emotions, that I could then give science data to somebody who's a scientist to prove the art, right? That, that it's about emotions, it's about feelings. Um, and that culture of innovation, I think, really comes from appreciating the balance that we have to strike in healthcare of art and science, of how do you make or not make, because that wouldn't be uh, collaborative, but how do you help people see the importance of art, even when you're doing science, you know? And uh, my, my example of this that I always like to use is um, if you give a patient or a family a medicine, I called it the magic potion, right? Your chances of, ha of providing a good experience go up. That's been shown in data, though also refuted in data, but largely you find data that says if you give them an antibiotic, they're happier. So... The way I would say this is like, hey, if you're not giving them anything, then the only thing you're giving them is the art side. It's the empathy, compassion, understanding, uh, reassurance, right? All of those soft things. And so if you pay attention and you always deliver on both or at least deliver on the soft, you can make good headway. Uh, and when I started doing that, I felt like the culture of innovation around experience started taking hold because everyone was understanding it, but it was given to them in a language that they understand. And I think that was really important was uh, not giving it to them in my language as a patient experience person. And, you know, they made fun of me, right, for my artsiness of approach. Uh, my close, you know, my close colleagues would. But they started to appreciate it when I could back it up with data. And I think that creates a culture of innovation when we can back up kind of the stuff we're doing that feels out on the periphery by a little bit of science, by a little bit of data, by a little bit. You know, it really made a huge difference. And we were able to get great traction. You know, and, and, and I'm going to be honest with you. I think innovation is largely driven by passion, right? When you are passionate about something, your passion actually pulls other people in to the conversation, right? To innovate. They, they get drawn into that idea of passion. And so 
Um, you know, when you're really passionate about something and it's your job, it, I, to me, that is the first step towards a culture of innovation is that when everyone's passionate, you can make a huge difference very quickly. You know? Yeah. And I think you touched on something really important. I think that, and it, and now that healthcare is kind of in the, in the crosshairs of big tech and technology in general, I think that, you know, bringing data to us, that's how you speak to us, right? We, our whole career, if you look at the, how we're trained, it's all on data. It's, we never make it. Well, I shouldn't say never. We are not supposed to make a decision outside of if it's not, it doesn't have any data backing it up. If it doesn't have data backing it up, it better have some sort of physiological mechanism that makes sense. Otherwise, we don't do it. We're not supposed to do it. And I think that's one thing that a lot of people, I shouldn't say a lot of people, that's one thing that tech doesn't understand about us is bring data to us and we will be like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Let's let's look into it. But if you're like, hey, we're, we're going to be doing this, 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 and this. And the first question you're going to be asked is, well, how do you prove it? And then right. that's where it kind of stops. And like kind of what you mentioned, and it's like a really, I'm glad you used that example because over medication, the opioid crisis, all that stuff, everyone is really hypersensitive about antibiotic resistance, opioid crisis. So we're not trying to prescribe many medications, but as you said, patients come in, they want us, they want us to solve some things. A lot of times it's, Hey, there's take this medication and we don't want to do it sometimes because it's not necessary. So how do you make their experience better? How do you make them happy when they leave? And it's exactly what you said. It's all the soft skills. And I will say that we are not the best at it, honestly, because we're not really taught it. I mean, to be completely honest with you. I was going to say, I mean, the reality, I think, in the system is that it's not taught. And for good reason, (laughs) because if you spend all your time in medical school or in whatever school you're in, right, teaching the soft skills, what clinical stuff are we leaving out that could hurt someone, right, and could harm someone. So that balance is really important. And I, I, I'll, I'll give this for, for anyone listening um, that might be helpful to hear. I started on that pathway after I read a book by Jerome Groupman, um, who's a physician. Um, he might be retired now, a physician at Mass General. And he wrote a book called How Doctors Think. And to me, as an administrator, a non-clinical person, that was to read that book was like, oh. And he basically just wrote a book about how doctors, physicians, you know, scientists think. And it's so helpful to read and say, that's how I reach them, right? You have to talk to them in the language that they understand. And that's what I think we're talking about is how do you talk to them in a language they understand while still being able to get across the importance of what you're sharing, whether it's empathy, compassion, you know, it's, it's got to be backed up. You've got to back it up. You can't just, you can't say be kind. You have to show them that being kind in the care delivery setting actually has a positive impact on outcomes, a positive impact on experience, you know, whatever it may be which it does, by the way, right? We know it does, uh, it's been, that's also been proven. 100%, if you, come, if you come into like an ICU telling them, hey, we gotta start doing this, everyone's gonna look at you like, dude, we barely have enough time to eat lunch. But if you come in saying, hey, we gotta do this because studies have shown you know, a greater improvement, patients will leave a day earlier, you know, all these things, then they'll be right. like, okay, yeah, we'll give it a try. I mean, there still will be pushback. I'm not saying that <laughs> there will still be pushback, but the pushback will be less and they will begrudgingly at least try it. Right. And Agreed. then, but, Agreed. Because, but the, because there's data behind it. Right. And, yeah. and I think that's one of the things that can drive a culture of innovation in the hospital setting is just bring data. Don't just bring ideas. And yeah. it's great to have ideas and stuff, but like, if you want to really get people rallying around something, we all can rally around one thing. And one thing only really is just our patients, making them feel better, yeah. 
getting them out of the hospital quicker and just, you know, just, because that makes our job easier too, right? Because then yeah. the family's happier. Everyone's happier because yeah. everyone is feeling better. So like, that's what we can rally around. So if you're a startup or something, like that's what you need to like really go into, hone into. And I'll definitely yeah. take a look at that book too. That's interesting. It's a cool, it's a cool book. I, I mean, I read it years ago, but it's kind of what got me on the journey. I did want to inject one thing from what you were just saying is, and, and I believe in this, it's like, bring the data, show the data, prove it, do not weaponize it. Do not start causing harm with your data. And I feel like that is something that is becoming or was in, or, or can easily become in healthcare has, has been somewhat rampant where we've started weaponizing this data. And it's kind of like, if all you're using is a stick, right, to, with the data, it, it doesn't really drive the result and it's not innovative. Right. It, it actually causes us eventually will cause retraction or um, apathy. Right. <laughs> because it, no one wants to be. And so I feel like it's like you have to bring the data to show that what you're talking about matters and then be sure you don't weaponize that data to cause harm to those caregivers, those care teams. The, you know, it's like don't weaponize it. Once you weaponize it. Right. Our human response to that is threat. And now you've created a whole different situation, you know, and so I'm not that is all to say I am not a proponent of, you know, tying a bunch of um, salary and, and bonus structure and things heavily to things like the net promoter score or a provider's, you know, patient satisfaction score, because, you know, it, it just doesn't feel right to me when we're talking about humans and providing, you know, exceptional care. I just don't know that that feels right to me, but um, you got to bring the data. I'm not sure you should weaponize it, you know, and I think that distinction is really important. Yeah, no, I think that's a good distinction to bring up. I actually never thought about that, to be honest with you. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, data can easily, I mean, data is an interesting thing, right? Your data will show you what you want it to show you, right? Yes. And so you need really smart people. You need people that are, that understand that world to kind of, it's a reason why I tell people like, yeah, you can read a scientific study and get the completely different answer that it's supposed to give you, right? Because it takes me three or four like I have to read a study like three or four times to really understand what's going on. So like a lay person, and this is not to bash anyone, but a lay person yeah. is not going to be able to read a study or like an abstract and be like, Oh, this is exactly what's happening. It just, it's not, right. it's not possible. It's like me going, opening the car hood, looking at the engine and be like, yep, I can fix this. I just got to yeah. unscrew this bolt here. You got to unscrew this bolt here. Boom. I should be good to go. Like, I like it, that connect. it makes yeah. no sense. Like I'm not going to do that. So like yeah. let people, I mean, but there's also like a ero erosion of trust that's been going on from all sides as well. And I think that's kind of what's been leading us down this path. Agree. Agree. Yeah. Yeah. But... The, the, ero the erosion of trust in healthcare is real. And, and I've, whenever I say that, I say the erosion of trust between the patient family and the healthcare delivery system is real. The erosion of trust between the clinical care teams and the healthcare organization is real. Like there's a, it's a trust crisis, right? It's like we've, the system got rocked. And now that you know, we need to start steering ourselves out of this, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to steer itself out and we can't ignore the problem. Yeah, know? no, exactly. Yeah. But so I would love to learn like, you know, kind of what patient experience things that you guys did at the hospital, like what, what were kind of like your big, like things that you're really proud of? Yeah. So, um, during my time, so during my time with PM pediatric, I think the thing I was most proud of, um, that we did was we actually built this entire, um, we, we used belts like karate belts, you know, kind of like Lean Six Sigma does and that sort of thing. We built this entire um, patient experience training that was compulsory that everybody had to do. 
Um, and you know, we were, it sounds very traditional because that's a common approach. And, and we kind of came up with a way that we wanted to do it. And we brought a bunch of people in from within the organization to be facilitators with us. So it wasn't just me or, or Patrick who was working with me at the time on, on patient experience. It wasn't just us doing it. It was actually, we had physicians, uh, medical assistants, nurses, x-ray technicians all involved. Actually, you know, our care team representation, if you will, delivering the content with us. Um, and uh, what was really cool about it was that it was compulsory, which some people are like, well, no one loves a compulsory training. And so our goal was, could we do a compulsory training that actually did really well? And that people at the end of it didn't feel like this was stupid. You know, like that was, and it sounds silly, but it was like, can we, can we actually be, create something that is engaging and fun and educational? And I'll tell you how we did it was that all of our content was intended not just to help them with experience professionally, but also help them personally. So not that we're psychologists or not that we're, but it was kind of like, let's give them tools, techniques, tactics, and approaches that they can apply at work and in life. And that I think really resonated with people. And so we were able in, in the course of delivering this to see people, you know, we did a pre and we got a little scientific with it. We did a pre, a pre-survey and a post-survey and like, let's see if we actually are moving people, you know, to, in the session and the feedback and it killed, like it did so unbelievably well and people loved it. And um, they came in upset having to be there and leaving, you know, fed, but also that was pretty good. Like that was fun, you know, and that to me as an accomplishment is how do you teach something, put them in a room for up to four hours it could take, depending on the dialogue and the conversation um, and have them leave thinking like that was worth my time, you know? And so um, both Patrick and I were always very proud of the time and effort we put into the content. Um, we traveled all over the country to do it because we had PM has sites all over the United States. And so we were traveling all around delivering this in person live, you know, with rooms and uh, rooms full of people. And it was just a ton of fun, but they had fun too. And I think to me, it was like, that was, I was really proud of that. Uh, unfortunately, I'll share the pandemic shut it down. So we were like almost done with the whole company and then the pandemic started and then it kind of just disappeared because the new normal, right, was even after the pandemic wound down was like, how do we bring that back? And then the content would have had to all be rebuilt because of what happened during the pandemic and how we changed as a company. So it, it uh, we were trying to figure out how to bring it back, you know, before my departure, but uh, it never happened. But I was so proud of that because it worked. The provide we we would break it out by the way by you know are they provider are they a nurse because we wanted to see and it was hugely impactful in every category and I was so proud of that man I was so proud of that because you know usually in the past I hadn't seen things that I've done that worked that way and so that was really powerful that's amazing um, yeah. I hundred percent know exactly what compulsory training is we're always like oh my God, why do we oh. You're just there to click check a box and leave, right? And you're hoping that their lunch is provided. That's it. Uh, so that's amazing. So I, I 100% know. <laughs> because, you know, like when those things happen, you're like, oh my God, I got all these other things that I need to do. Patrons yeah. are piling up. So like the fact that you can, and I love the way you approached it. It was able to, it wasn't something they could just use for work. It was something that they could use for their whole life, right? Like how do you yeah. deal with people at home? Or, and pe Because it yeah. kind of goes back to initially what you said, right? It's human. We're all human beings and we yes. all are just because one's a doctor, one's a patient, one's a pharmacist, one's this, we're all 
like we're still all human beings we all still feel the same way we all still do the same things because it's just our title and our things are different you know at the time but in the end right. we're all just human beings well i used to start whenever i would facilitate this i would always start by saying my goal for today is for everyone to leave and say that wasn't so bad <laughs> right that was and that's compulsory training, right? If you're a facilitator of a compulsory training, that's really your goal. You want people to leave thinking that wasn't so bad. But what we found is people would leave and be like, that was pretty cool. Like, that was good. Like, I got – and we did things just, to, you know, to share for anyone listening. You know, we didn't do anything. We, we did active listening. We did empathic communication. We did conflict dynamics. We did – you know, it was like working in all of those things serve you equally at work as in life. It, 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 so knowing how to actively listen helps you in life. Knowing, understanding the dynamics of conflict helps you in life. You know, and so this idea that when you're giving people translatable skills into both of their worlds, they pay better attention, they learn more, and they become more engaged, right, it, with the content because they're learning. They're actually like, oh, I can use conflict dynamics to understand my kids at home, for example, of what they're upset about, and that's you know. So it's really powerful to package it that way. Yeah, I kind of want to take this class now. You, you know, it sounds really good. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of health tech startups in, in general that are like focusing on patient specific experience. Right. Um, and my I, th I think that they should be focusing on the whole thing, kind of what we were saying, like you need to you need to have providers in that experience because the providers aren't pushing your platform, your platform's dead. Right. So yep. what are your thoughts on like. Okay, so if a, if a startup came up to you and like, hey, we got this patient experience platform, like what are key things that you're looking for in that platform? Yeah, so um, interestingly, I've had a couple of these conversations recently. You know, the first thing, uh, the first thing that I actually am looking for not, isn't how the tech itself works necessarily. So if it's a patient engagement platform and it's powered through, let's say, AI or something else, it's like one of my first questions is how do they talk to someone? like an actual person. So when this, when this doesn't work, what's the pathway to get them to somebody that can help them? Because what I know, and I'm speaking for myself and maybe my generation, uh, my Gen X comes through right here, is that I can engage with those things. But at some point, and it depends on what's happening, I do want to talk to someone who can actually help me, you know, and not go through an algorithm or not feel like I'm talking to a robot or not feel like I'm doing a chatbot or whatever. And so I often focus on how quickly when this isn't working, like how does it work that I can get someone that can actually help me? Because I think, again, if we zoom out on the human level, we run better on human interactions. And I feel like a lot of the digital tech products, whether it's patient experience or whatever, I can, I always used to say, I can tie anything to patient experience. You know, that was my job. But, you know, if it's a tech platform, it's like how, how easy is it to use? And how do I feel as a human going through that process? And what are my emotions that it's going to, you know, uh, elicit going through it? So I'm very focused on not just the process, what are the outs of the process? And then how is it actually connected to everything else? And I, I, I feel like one of the things that's going on right now is we got a whole lot of tech and it's like duct tape and popsicle sticks that we're putting it together and it's not seamless to the patient at all. It's not seamless. It's different systems and different apps and different, you know, it's like, and that's really hard. It's really hard to put a human through that. You know, it works for the business, usually the organization. Right? It's like, because it doesn't impact them as much as it impacts, you know, the patient or the family trying to schedule an appointment, for example, you know, so I'd like to see how does it actually allow me to talk to somebody, 
right? And um, and and how is it actually connected into everything else? It can't just be its own node. It doesn't work well when it's that way. At least in my experience, you know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think a lot of people can just sympathize sympathize with like you know trying to call your cell phone company or credit card company right. or whatever, and you're just like going through these prompts. And let's just say you know you yourself your something got stolen, your identity got stolen. Now you're going through these prompts, and it's hours and hours and hours. <laughs> and you're getting really frustrated. And now imagine now you have a life-threatening disease and right. your and your family is like you can I mean we, we you can come back from okay, you lost money. Yes, it sucks. You can rebuild your life. But if you're in a life-threatening situation or you think your other person is going to die because and you know it's, patients don't always know the how extreme the situation is and nor should they, right? They they weren't trained to do to to triage. <laughs> So we can't really get mad at them if they think something is bad, but like, just put yourself in their shoes, right? Like, and that's the one thing that I completely agree with you. I think they're kind of going back to my initial point, like we're taking the empathy and humanity out of healthcare. Yeah. And we can't do that because it's just a very personal experience and you have to be empathetic when you're dealing with other people's things, regardless if, if you think it's, oh, this is not a problem. Oh my God. You know, this happens in, on our end all the time. Oh my God, why are they calling us for this? Well, they're calling us right. because they're scared. And right. that's why they're calling us. It's not necessarily it's not necessarily the question that they're asking. They just want to talk to somebody because they're scared. And they're just trying yeah. to they're just they're asking you a question to kind of just get you through the door, but they got they have other things going on and we need to figure out what is going on. Why are you so scared? Yeah, no, and that <clears throat> so it's really like how do you bring tech in with a blend of humanity? That's essentially what we're saying is that we, I think we all agree that we need tech in order to streamline appointment scheduling or to streamline visit planning or to streamline check-in, you know, filling out the check-in or the registration, you know, my medical history. We need, we need all, everyone knows that we need that. But when you depersonalize it, especially in an industry like healthcare, right, it, it, it rarely serves the patient well. And on the other side is you have the care teams trying to navigate all these different platforms and programs getting frustrated because they just want to take care of the patient, right? That it's like we've, so we create this bubble for them and then, you know, yes, it helps with, you know, collection of insurance information so that we can bill and get paid, right? Yes, it helps. So I, I get that, but it's, it's hard because, you know, we have to consider that whole ecosystem. We can't just consider that it makes our platform or it makes our system work in one way and then hurts it in four others. Yeah. I love the fact that you use ecosystem. That's the word I use a lot when I'm describing healthcare, yeah. because I think when people look at something as an ecosystem, they understand that, Hey, if I do this, if I pull on this lever, then I got to give up something on some other end. Right. So right. I think that's one thing that people really need to look at is healthcare is an ecosystem. That's, that is a very personal ecosystem. And then the other thing you kind of touched on too, is care teams. You know, if you're coming in the way of us, taking care of our patients, you're going to piss us off, right? Yeah. Because yeah. our job is already hard enough as it is without your solution coming in the middle of it. Well, well, not to mention that in some places, right, when you talk about, and in the urgent care or the emergency department, it's like throughput is enormous, right? The idea, so you start laying your technology over the process and you slow down our efficiency and our throughput. And then on the back end, you come around and you're on me about length of stay or you're on me about, and it's like, well, why don't you take out the seven systems we're using, <laughs> right? Like it takes too long to register a patient because we got to do it in two systems. It takes too long to, 
document on this patient because the you know the EMR doesn't work the way that it should or whatever the example is. It's kind of like we create it and then we come back around with other measures and metrics, the data, and it's like a whack. You know, and it's like how we've got to find balance in those things, right? Again, it goes, it's weaponized, right? Don't weaponize it. Don't you don't buy all the tech and set it up and then weaponize it. You know, that that doesn't that never that never helps. It never it, it only breeds resentment. You know, it really only breeds resentment. One hundred percent. So, you know, again, so a health tech company comes to you, so they have a good product, right? So like what what is like how a how do they get through the door, right? How do they get to somebody like you? And then how do they get, how, how do they implement their product moving forward? Like, can, can you kind of walk us through that cycle? Yeah. You know, for me, it's always been, um, <laughs> I may regret saying this right now, you know, anyone that, anyone that reaches out to me with a product that they think can help, I rarely say no to seeing the product. And there's, and now for, for those that aren't in the product space and maybe on the, on the other side or in the, my side of the space. Um, you know, the reason I do that is it's fascinating to see what everybody's doing. So, because it really lets you start to put together what's out there so that you can understand it. So I, I think it's always important. And, and, and I say this seriously, like saying no to somebody wanting to show you their product, you know, is, is really short-sighted because it's an opportunity for you to see what their product actually can do and does and what's happening outside of your space in their space. Um, you know, from there for me, it's like I've I've loved the organic relationships that I've been able to start with some companies just by seeing their product when I wasn't even really looking. It's kind of like you find what you're looking for when you're not looking. When you're actually looking, it becomes really hard because then you're like, well, we've got to do an RFP and we got to, you know, we got to request proposals and we got these six companies and every, every you bring in all the people, the stakeholders, and you're all sitting there. And by the sixth one, everyone's eyes are glossed over, you know, and um, no, and I think that's a real thing we all go through. Um, but I will tell you the number one thing I've always assessed in those is, do I want to work with these people? <laughs> okay. So I don't care how great your product is. If during the process of us meeting each other, I'm not, it's the human, it's the characteristics. Right. And I'm like, the vibe isn't right. Or I'm not sure, you, you know, it, the pitch matters. Like the humans on the other side of the pitch matters. Can I partner with them? Because to me, it's a partnership and I'm assessing whether your product is malleable. I'm assessing whether how flexible you are. I'm assessing how it's going to integrate. I'm assessing when I call you guys, you know, if I, if I need something or want something and I call you guys, how are you going to respond? Uh, you know, so I very much focus on those things because I'm going to be honest with you. A lot of the products I've seen and see, there's similar products. So to me, the tech to be mind blowing, it's hard these days. There's a lot of people doing the same thing in a lot of these different avenues. But when you come in with the same product and you're good human beings and good people and you, you and that comes through, your authenticity comes through, your I'm very that gets me very interested because I I look forward to then partnering with you. Right? That's a that's a human connection, not a tech connection. And I think for me that's really important. Um from an implementation perspective, it's it's always, you know, I don't like to go too slow, but slow and steady wins that race because we do way too many fast implementations. And um, I've always said my entire career, you know, when you when you're bringing something in or you're doing any project, even if it's not an implementation, just a project, and you say, our timeline, you know, I need we need this implemented in three weeks. And my response, and anyone listening that knows me and worked with me will probably heard me say this. I'll say, well, if we don't do it in three weeks, are we going to go out of business? Right now, it's not me being snarky. It's me saying. Is this a true emergency or can I have five weeks or can I have six weeks, 
right? It's this idea like we what's the urgent is the urgency that we're in trouble. If we're in trouble, then let's get it done. If we're and that may be my emergency brain kicking in, right? My emergency department brain. If not, let's be thoughtful and make sure because uh, to your point, when you get to the providers or you get to the other care team members and you're touching their world, you do that wrong, your your implementation will fail. It's 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 just not gonna or will get prolonged from I implemented it in three weeks and it took us three years to actually get it going because we did it too fast. Fast is not better. <laughs> fast is not always better. And I think that that gets lost in implementations of tech. Um, so to summarize relationships, like, can I work with these people? And implementation is do it the right way because you're, you're touching things that touch people's workflows. So you have to be extremely mindful of that and do that well, or you're going to be spending years cleaning up the mess that you made. I've been part of those implementations. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we all have, right? Like, I think we all have it. If you've been in the game for, you know, a while, I think we've all had that experience on both sides. Right. And, uh, I've had, I've been implemented on and implemented and made mistakes. I'm, I'm a human too. And, and push things too fast, too far and, and had to clean up the mess, you know? Yeah. And then that kind of brings up a, an interesting point. So, you know, like, you know, you are in a department that touches almost every department, right? How do you disseminate like a change? How do you like, you know, how do you disseminate that kind of information? Because that's one of the that's one of the hardest things in a hospital system. I mean, you're across the country, even like a hospital campus, you know, there's so many providers coming in and you can throw an academic medicine in there. You have residents, fellows, all these people constantly changing nursing staff, pharmacy staff. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's just yeah. how, how do you what is how do you disseminate this information? Like, what have you found that works the best? Yeah. You know, uh, one of the things that uh, I did for, for years was I, I was an adjunct professor and I taught managing organizational change. That was kind of one of my core courses that I taught. And it was so much fun to teach that. And the first slide on the first day said, um, yeah, it was like managing organizational change. Changing things changes lives. That was how I summarized it. And so I said, anytime you're approaching any sort of change, an implementation, uh, you know, whatever it is, just remember that you're changing someone's life, right? And it, I'm, I don't say it to be dramatic. I say it to remind us that we have to acknowledge the human component of change. The reason change is messy is humans. And so anytime I've approached change, well, not anytime, what I've learned and then adopted because I made many mistakes, you know, it shouldn't sound like I already always knew this, right? But anytime you're approaching change, it's this idea that, well, take a step back, slow and steady wins the race. So start talking about it, start socializing it, start asking for feedback, getting people to provide input, you know, have your pauses and your breaks along the way of an implementation to ask how things are going and, you know, what's working, what's not working, what would you like to see, what you, you know, and I think it's like, again, it's the timeline really matters, but I think we have to bring back that human component that when you're changing things, it causes and elicits a human response, period. And it doesn't matter what it is. And we have to acknowledge that. If you don't, it breeds that resentment and then it eventually they can become saboteurs right, to a project or an idea. And I think that that's what you end up dealing with on the other side. So for me, the change component has always been reduce it down to the human level and understand there's emotion attached to this and start understanding the emotions that will help you then manage those emotions. It's less about the product. People don't get really mad about a product. They get mad about how it makes them feel. They get mad about, you know, um, they get mad about the emotion and the human side of it. That's, yeah. what, that's what I found anyways. Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, uh, I've been part of change and I remember um it wasn't necessarily a it was a couple of things like oh it was either they didn't hear about it and it's kind of happening too quickly or you know they're really they're really 
I don't want to use stuck in their ways because that that's a negative connotation, but they have been doing something the same way for a very long time. It's been successful. And again, going back to, we are dealing with patients' lives. So any little change can maybe make them make a mistake. You know, they're like, oh man, right. what if this, this is like, you have to kind of think about that. And I completely agree with you. Like, it's not necessarily well, the change. It's just how that change makes them feel. And if you can ease their pain or ease their like worries, the change will happen quicker. And I, the other thing I would add to that, 100% agree with you, and leaders need to lead. And you cannot lead an implementation. You cannot lead change from a distance. So when you were, we were talking about PM and you were like all over, it was like, if I needed to do something, if I wanted, if a, if a site in California was struggling, I got my butt on an airplane and I went out there and I helped them because physically being present matters in those scenarios, right? Like you're creating change, you've got to lead change and you lead it with the people, not behind the people, not in the building down the street if you're in a hospital, you get in the trench with them and you lead them, you know? And, and so I, I don't, from my perspective, it's like in any matter of change, whether it's tech coming into your organization and you know some sort of a digital platform that you're gonna implement for patients and families or anything else, you lead from the front with the people. That's the answer. You don't do that, and you are just asking for trouble. It, it doesn't work. You know, they they need their leaders to lead, uh, and I think that that sometimes is missing in large companies. I'm I'm being honest. It's hard when you're geographically dispersed across the United States. That's a hard thing. But that was why I was like, I got to get on an airplane. I'm going because if I go there, I can help them. If I cannot do it across the country, I yeah. can do it, but I can't do it well. Yeah, and then all I mean, I can't. I mean, 100 percent what you already said. Also. Be <coughs> Being in the environment, it helps you empathize with what is actually happening versus what you think is happening. Because what you think is happening and what is actually happening are very different things, especially in healthcare. Yes. No, and that that's a great point. That's a, I mean, that brings us into Lean Six Sigma, where we say go on the Gemba, which is to go where the work is done, right? And this idea, if you're not seeing in a part of where the work is done and you're going to implement something there, good luck. Like, it's not going to work. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. You have to have a foundational fundamental understanding of the whole process and the only way to get it is to be where the work is done <laughs> you can't do it any other way you can't guess yeah yeah um so we're we're actually a little over i'm sorry about that but you know i do want to ask you one more question so you know you have this wealth of knowledge wealth of experience what would you have what what um advice would you have given yourself when you started your career yeah so for me <laughs> I, I i actually uh, answer this question to myself all the time and make it as a joke um, I wish in some ways I had studied psychology more. And um, as an ex someone in experience, I've also said, if I could do it over, I would major and get my degrees in psychology. Because at the end of the day, what I've learned over the course of the last 20 years is what we were talking about today. It's all about the humans. It's about emotions. It's about how we think. It's about how we conduct ourselves. And I wish I had studied humans and their behavior much sooner because managing change is human. Right, the problems with change is humans. The issues going on in the healthcare delivery system right now are human related, um, and so I, I wish I'd spent more time learning, understanding, and studying humans and why we behave the way that we do. Um, and I think that would have helped me tremendously. But uh, I'm I'm also excited that I've discovered it now because I spend most of my time reading and understanding and learning psychology, you know, social psychology, and why we do the things we do. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Uh, is there any um, books that you've come across that have been really helpful? Yeah, so there's, um, I can give three. Um, the first is Sapiens, um, by which most people know, you've all know a Harari. That book will blow your mind. 
Um, the second is The Human Brand, uh, which was written by Chris Malone and Susan Fisk. So Chris Malone is actually the founder of Fidelum Health, uh, who I'm working with now. And this was part of the how I ended up connecting with them. But Susan Fisk is a social psychologist, and they wrote a book about how organizations um, take on human-like characteristics as a brand, um, and that we we use we identify them that way, but also helps you understand why humans think the way that we do. Very powerful. And another book that I really enjoyed about this was uh, called Moments, um, where it talks about why humans remember what we remember and why we do what we do. And so they say uh, humans don't remember dates, they don't remember times, they remember moments. And um, and then. It, this idea that like we're programmed to remember highlights and you know peaks and valleys, highs and lows, and that we remember a lot of them because they were a peak or a valley, and it talks about how to create peaks. And so, um, you know, again, not to be fake about it, but really understanding what drives humans. But all three of those books are amazing if if you're interested in uh, or if anyone's interested in like kind of human psychology and why we do what we do. Awesome. I'm gonna have to. I've I've read Sapiens and parts of Sapiens. I need to finish it, but the other two I've not. I'll definitely have to add that. It's to a hard my list. read. Yeah, it's, it is, but it, it, but like the parts I got through were pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah. So if anyone wants to reach out to you, um, how do they get, how do they do that? Yeah. I think the easiest or the best way is, uh, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Um, and, uh, that's how we met, right. Was, yeah. uh, was via the LinkedIn platform. And, um, so no, I would, if anyone reach out, that's probably the best and the easiest way. If anyone's interested in connecting, I, uh, I love having conversations like this. I love connecting with people and just talking through ideas and topics and things. So, so LinkedIn is probably the best way best way to do it awesome yeah no thank you so much i was really excited for this conversation and it definitely delivered so i really appreciate your time no this was amazing thank you i really appreciate it